Good morning. Let's take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 8. continue this morning in our study of the Gospel of Luke, and today we begin chapter 8, Luke chapter 8, just scan your eyes through it real quick. Uh, There are a bunch of really wonderful stories in this chapter. You've got the parable of the sower, starting in verse 4. You've got Jesus calming the storm, starting in verse 22. Uh, Demons being cast into pigs. That's in verse 26, and you've got the raising of Jairus' daughter, starting in verse 40. Like, Luke chapter 8 is one of the most exciting, most action-packed chapters in the entire book. And so we might be tempted, and maybe we do this more often than we'd admit in our Bible reading. We might be tempted to just skip over these first three verses here and get right to the exciting stuff. Uh, Because these first three verses, well... It's a little bit of background and a couple of names. And there is no action-packed story here. There's no wise teaching here. I mean, they're just transitional summary verses. And so we can just skip over these, right? Well, yeah, they are transitional summary verses. And it would not be the end of the world if we just combined these verses with the parable of the sower. And I just made a brief mention of them in a sermon about the parable. But as I studied this week, uh, these verses that, just to be 100% honest, I've never really given much thought to before, I was reminded once again of just the depth of the Word of God. And so I think we would profit from not rushing into the rest of the chapter, but just thinking about these first three verses here. And so that's our game plan for this morning. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Uh, Let me start by just reading the verses So hear the word of the Lord. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Let's pray together. Father, we know and we believe and we trust that the Bible is your word, that you speak to your people through your word. And so we pray that as we go through this particular passage this morning, that you would grant to us ears to hear, We ask that you would give us attentive minds that are eager for truth and humble hearts that are desirous to submit under the authority of your word. Please, Father, shape us and change us and convict us by your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we think about Jesus' earthly ministry, like what he actually did in those three years Uh, we probably begin thinking about the miracles that he did. And 
That makes sense because nobody had ever seen anything like that. Right? Moses and Elijah and Elisha, they'd done miracles before, but nothing on the scale, the magnitude of Jesus. Nobody ever displayed miraculous power like Jesus. And we just saw some of that miraculous power in chapter 7. Right, the distance healing of the centurion servant, the raising of the widow at Nain's son. And so it's also going to be referred to again in the verses for today, right? That Jesus drove out demons from these women, that he healed these women miraculously. But even with all this miraculous power, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Even with all of that, we need to be reminded that that was not his main purpose in coming. And that is to perform miracles and heal the sick and cast out demons. That was not Jesus' primary mission. Rather, his primary purpose in coming was to teach and preach. Look again at verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Now that's a a verse that's really similar to one we've already seen in this gospel, Luke 4.43. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. I was sent for this purpose, as in this is why I came, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. The good news that the king of the kingdom was here, that he came to seek and save the lost. The good news that the fulfillment of that which God had promised through the prophets is now right in front of their eyes. Right? Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The good news that Messiah is come, bringing salvation to sinners. And so Luke basically repeats that verse from chapter 4, here in chapter 8, as if to remind us, lest we forget, what Jesus' mission is. Don't get caught up in all the miracles that I've been telling you about and become like the crowds who just saw Jesus as this miracle worker. Don't fixate on the the signs so much that you forget what the signs are pointing to, the good news of the kingdom of God. Because that's why Jesus came, to preach that message. But notice something else interesting in verse 1. He went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Now remember, geographically, he is still in Galilee at this point, which means that he is not preaching that message in Jerusalem where all the prominent religious folks would be, all the the movers and shakers of Judaism would have been. He's not preaching in Rome or Alexandria where the power and the wealth and prestige of society was. Now we're talking cities and villages of Galilee. Right? Like podunk backcountry towns like, like Nain. Like that's where he's preaching. Uh, Jesus is going around to these little small towns with their small, uninfluential populations, and he's preaching the gospel to them. Not to the powerful and mighty, to widows and lepers and the poor and the outcast. But that's exactly what Jesus said he would do when he quoted that passage from Isaiah, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
That was true back in chapter 4, verse 43, and that's still true here, chapter 8, verse 1. But there is one difference, and that's that if you look at the end of verse 1, now the 12 disciples are with him. Uh, They hadn't been chosen yet in chapter 4, but here in chapter 8, right, they are the 12. Now at this point, they haven't been commissioned yet to go and do ministry. That only comes in chapter 9, but uh, for now, look at the text, they're just with him. And the twelve were with him. They're watching and listening to Jesus teach and preach and they're learning from him and they're just, they're studying his every move as his followers, as his disciples. And so far, there's been nothing too crazy in this passage, right? Nothing out of the ordinary. It's basically been just this recap of what we've seen and read before. But all of that changes in verse 2. Just look at the first four words of verse 2. And also some women. And also some women. In addition to the twelve being with Jesus in the sense that they followed him around in his ministry, some women were also with Jesus. They too followed him around in his ministry. Now maybe that sounds uncontroversial to us. We have to remember that things were very different back then. Back then, society as a whole had a very low regard for women. As a matter of fact, there was a common daily prayer that Jewish men would recite, something along the lines of, I thank God that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. And so most rabbis would refuse to teach women. They had this idea that that spiritual instruction was only appropriate for men. And you can kind of pick up on that mindset in what the disciples say to Jesus in John chapter 4, verse 27. Uh, Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? They marveled that he was talking with a woman because rabbis weren't supposed to be talking to women. Why are you talking with her? And so given the general disregard for women that the religious leaders of the day had, for a woman, for women, to be part of a rabbi's traveling company, that would have been unheard of. Such groups of followers should only be comprised of men. And so this verse, Luke 8, 2, and also some women, well, that would have been shocking to your average first century Jewish reader, that Jesus would have anything to do with women. But to us, as careful readers of Luke, well, we we shouldn't be all that surprised that women would play an important role in Jesus' ministry because Luke especially, of all the gospel writers, Luke especially draws our attention to Jesus' many interactions with women. You remember how the gospel started off Uh, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and their praise and worship of God's redemption in motion. Then in chapter 2, you remember Jesus, baby Jesus is at the temple, and who is it that rejoiced at seeing Jesus but the widow Anna? In chapter 4, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then in more recent stories, chapter 7, we have the story of the widow at Nain, 
and the compassion that Jesus has on her. And then the sinful woman from last week's story, your sins are forgiven. And that's just what we've covered in Luke so far. The rest of the New Testament, well, gives us the woman at the well, Martha and Mary, Dorcas, full of good works and acts of charity. Lydia was the first convert in Europe. Lois and Eunice, they taught young Timothy. And the list goes on and on and on. And so in a cultural context, uh, which was in many ways antagonistic towards women, in which women were viewed as inferior and largely neglected in spiritual matters, well, Jesus just flip turns that upside down. Not for the sake of stirring the pot or being countercultural, but demonstrating, as the one who created all people, demonstrating that both men and women were created in the image of God. That both men and women could know salvation through this good news of the kingdom that he preached. That both men and women could be faithful servants of the king. So let me just say this to my sisters in Christ. Your faith and your ministry and your work for the Lord, that is precious in the eyes of God. The word of God specifically commends the labors of faithful women in a day and age that would have typically overlooked it. And even today, God delights in the faithful ministry of his daughters. And of course, as with anything we do for the Lord, we don't want to go outside of the boundaries of Scripture. The Bible is clear that men and women, though equally his children, have been given different roles in the home and in the ministry. And so, for example, when we think about the ministry of the church, uh, women ought not to preach or teach men or exercise authority in the church, 1 Timothy 2.12. But sisters, don't miss the point. Right? None of that precludes you from being a faithful disciple, a committed follower, a humble servant in the cause of King Jesus, as evidenced by these women in Luke 8 who were, along with the 12, with Jesus. But now, shifting from thinking about women generally, now to these specific women, what can we learn from their faithful example in the rest of our passage? Well, there's much that can be said. We'll focus on three things in particular. Uh, their past, their perseverance, and their provision. So number one, consider uh, their past. And we're going to do that by thinking about the first woman on the list, Mary Magdalene. Now, last week I said that uh, Simon must have been a really popular baby name for boys back then. Uh, the same is true for Mary as a girl's name. Mary is derived from Miriam, as in Moses' sister. And supposedly, back then, something like one in four Jewish women would have been named Mary. So naturally, you would expect, there's a lot of Marys in the New Testament. Uh, you have Mary Magdalene, who we're talking about today. You have, of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus. You have Mary of Bethany, a sister of Martha and Lazarus. Uh, you've got two pretty minor characters named Mary. You've got Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary, the wife of Clopas. Uh, we don't have much information about them. They might even be the same person. Uh, there's another Mary in the book of Acts, 
who is the mother of John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And then to top it all off, there's a Mary that Paul tells the Romans to greet in Romans chapter 16. So there are lots of Marys in the New Testament. Who is our Mary? Mary Magdalene. Well, Magdalene just means that she is from Magdala, and that would help distinguish her from all the other Marys running around. And the only thing we're told about her here, at least at this point, is that seven demons had been cast out of her. Obviously, we're supposed to understand that that is the work of Jesus, that Jesus healed her from demonic possession. We saw him do something similar earlier in Luke chapter 4 with the man at the synagogue at Capernaum. Remember, Jesus drives out the demon from him just by his word, and the whole crowd is wondering, what is this man, and, and, and what is this authority that he has? Well, we can assume that something similar, something along those lines, happened with Mary Magdalene. What's with her having seven demons? Well, it might be that literally she had seven demonic beings in her. Or it might be figurative language, like she had a really, really bad case of demon possession. Like any demon possession is bad. But here's a woman who's really oppressed, who's especially tormented by demons. And I say that because Jesus later uses that number seven in the context of demon possession to describe like a really, really bad situation. Luke eleven twenty four. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes... It finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other evil spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. You math major sitting there. One plus seven is actually eight. But you get my point. We can only imagine just how dark and miserable and tormented her life once was seven demons enslaved by all of these demonic powers but if the sun sets you free you will be free indeed right jesus casts all the demons out of her and so however this demon possession manifested itself in her life whether it's that she wasn't in her right mind or maybe she had violent seizures or whatever it was jesus heals her and makes her whole again That's all we know about her at this point. But in a sense, that's all we need to know about her, that Jesus has delivered her from her horrific past. And so now her life is characterized by this thankful devotion to Jesus. And so in that sense, she's she's just like the sinful woman from last week. The sinful woman from last week, she too was a woman with a past. Hers was not demon possession, but one of immorality and sin, so that everybody in the room knew that she was a sinner. And we don't know much else about her, except that Jesus delivers her from her past. Right? She's forgiven of her sins. And so what does she do in response? Well, in love and worship, she brings her alabaster jar of perfume to anoint Jesus, and when her initial plan goes awry, When she calls an audible, she worships him by washing and anointing his feet. Friends, whether you've been possessed by demons or known by everybody in society as a sinner, 
and maybe those would be the extreme cases where each and every one of us has a past. Maybe it was a life of immorality and rebellion against God. Maybe it was a life of self-righteousness and thinking that you were good enough to work your way to God. Whatever it was, the Bible is clear that we all, because of our sin against the holy God, we were his enemies. And yet for those of us who are believers, the truth is that in spite of our past, in spite of who we once were, well, God has saved us and made us into new creations. And so this sinful woman, her identity was in her sin and unrighteousness. She is a sinner, but now as a new creation, she's not only been forgiven, she's been clothed with the very righteousness of the Son of God. And Mary Magdalene, once a slave to demon possession and a slave to her sin, now as a new creation, she's a slave to Christ and a slave to righteousness. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, you fill in the blank for your own life. I was once this or that. But now, as a new creation, I am a child of God. Uh, I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I am united inseparably to Christ. I'm a heaven-bound saint. So here's the question. Why? If Mary Magdalene has been freed from this demon possession, if this no longer defines her existence, why does Luke still introduce her that way? Why does he bring up her past? Well, it's always hard to say with certainty what an author intended, but I think there's two reasons. One, to show how much Christ had done for her, and two, to show that her commitment to Christ was just a natural response to that glorious salvation. Friends, our our past does not define us, thank God, because everything is new in Christ. And so there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But at the same time, thinking about our past, being reminded of who we once were, well, that can really serve us by simply reminding us of the desperate condition that we were once in and the amazing grace of God that brought us out of that life, all of that leading to joy and thankfulness in our hearts. And I say that because, well, there are several New Testament passages that do exactly that. Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and in Mary Magdalene's case, right, literally so, being demon-possessed, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so now it's not just Mary Magdalene, it's all of us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Or 1 Corinthians 6, right? There's a whole bunch of sins listed there in verses 9 and 10 that characterize the person who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then what does Paul say in verse 11? Such were some of you. Sinful woman, you used to be like that. Mary Magdalene, you used to be like that. 
You and I, right, we used to be like that, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. One more, just for fun. Titus chapter 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Point number one, their past. And these women, Mary Magdalene, she had a past. But Christ delivered them from that past. And so they lived their lives in thankful worship to him. Point number two, their perseverance. And for this point, let's consider the second name on our list, Joanna. Uh, What do we know about Joanna? Well, she was the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. Early church historians tell us that before they got married, uh, there were actually two women that Chusa was considering as potential brides. There's Joanna, and there was this other lady. And so after much deliberation, he pointed to Joanna and he said, I choose her. I choose her. Choose her. All right, you'll laugh later. Uh, choose her is Herod's household manager. We're not exactly sure what that means. Maybe he managed Herod's estates. Maybe he was some kind of administrative official. Choose her. Come on, that's good. Maybe he's a financial advisor or some sort. We, we can't be sure. Uh, what we do know is that he was someone important in Herod's court. Or someone whom Herod would have trusted. And so their family, think about this, they would have been well off and well cared for. You remember what Jesus said in that passage where he says what John the Baptist is not like? He says, Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. Herod is a king. I think we can assume that Chusa's life, and by extension, his wife Joanna's life, was like that. And yet, what does Joanna do? She chooses to associate herself with Jesus. And not just associate herself, but be with him, to follow him, to commit her life to him. And so she's left the splendid clothing and and the luxury to be with this poor itinerant preacher who has nowhere to lay his head, who's going to be largely rejected by the people. And the world looks at that and says, that's a bad trade, Joanna. What does Jesus say later on in this gospel? When Peter says, see, we have left our homes and followed you. Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children or Herod's palace for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And so Joanna, the wife of Chusa, well, she serves us as a picture of humility and sacrifice, but that's not my point here. Point number two, she serves us as a picture of perseverance. And not just her, but Mary Magdalene, these other unnamed women as well. Well, because they, these women from Galilee, well, they stick with Jesus to the very end. 
when he's crucified, when the 12, one of the 12 has betrayed him, 10 of the 12 have run away, only John of the 12 is at the cross. Who's there with him? Matthew 27, 55. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And at his burial, again, it was these women from Galilee, Mary, Joanna, Susanna, the others who were watching closely, unashamed to be affiliated with their now dead savior, Luke 23, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. So these were women who persevered to the end. They had their lives changed by Jesus, right? Point number one, their past. And so they were committed to him to the very end. Point number two, their perseverance. Even when everybody else left, they were there. And the Lord, in just this amazing way, he rewards them for their perseverance. Because what happened on that first Easter Sunday? Well, those same women, the women from Galilee, they went to the tomb, they find it empty, an angel tells them he has risen, and they go back in joy, telling the eleven. And so again, who are we talking about here? Luke twenty four ten. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. I mean, you literally can't make this stuff up. The sources tell us that women back then were not even allowed to testify in most court cases. That is, the testimony of women was not considered reliable or weighty. And yet, to whom does Jesus give that awesome privilege of being the first to see with their very own eyes his victory over death? It's these women. Point number two, their perseverance. Third, let's consider point number three, their provision. We're going to verse three. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So, Susanna... We don't know anything about her because this is the only place in the Bible in which she appears. Uh, be honest, you probably didn't know that there was a lady named Susanna in the New Testament. Like, if you think about it, she is, she's barely top three in the best-known Susannas in Christianity. I think she's a clear third behind Susanna Wesley, mother of John and Charles, and Susanna Spurgeon, uh, the wife of the Prince of Preachers. I think she ranks just above Susanna Edwards, daughter of John Edwards. And so that's my value add, right? Where else are you going to get a list of the most significant Susannas in Christianity? But there it is for you. But in that sense, she's a lot less like Mary Magdalene and Joanna, about whom we know a little bit. She's more like these many others that Luke mentions in the sense that we don't really know anything about her. But friends, Susanna, these nameless women, well, first we're reminded that even if we have no clue who they were, God knows each of their names. And even more than that, that nothing that they did 
No devotion that they showed, no sacrifice that they made, no love for Jesus that they displayed is ever unseen or forgotten by God. Now keep that in mind. Next time you find yourself anonymously toiling for the kingdom, nobody else knows about what you're doing, nobody appreciates your work, well, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. But I want you to look at the very specific way in which Susanna these nameless women, uh, along with Mary Magdalene and Joanna, how they served the Lord. It says they provided for them out of their means, provided for them uh, the most reasonable antecedent being Jesus and the Twelve, right? So they provided for Jesus and his disciples. You see, ministry, whatever service you're rendering unto the Lord, It is an inherently spiritual activity. Uh, There's no doubt about that. But at the same time, there is a very practical side to ministry. Like Jesus and his disciples, they're people, and people got to eat. And in order to eat, you got to have money. Where are they going to get food and money? You might think to yourself, well, I mean, Jesus is the Son of God. Can't he just multiply loaves and fish every day to feed himself and the disciples? Well, that wasn't the Father's will. And you'll remember from the temptation account that Jesus specifically refuses to turn stone into bread because it's not the Father's will. You say, well, what about the disciples? Well, remember, the disciples, these are guys who left everything to follow Jesus. Peter, Andrew, James, John, right, the fishermen. Luke tells us in Luke 5.11, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. How about the tax collector guy? He's got some money, right? Luke 5.28, Matthew, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So you've got this teacher with no real source of income or food, And you've got his followers who have left everything to follow him. I mean, how are they going to survive? And the answer is, well, these women. Where they get this money, we're not told. Whatever money they had, they gave freely, they gave joyfully, and they gave plentifully, so much so that Jesus and his disciples could be supported in their full-time ministry. And so these women... They're a wonderful picture of the true disciples that Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Plain. Those who give without expecting anything in return. Remember what Jesus says about people like that? Their reward will be very great, and they will be sons and daughters of the Most High. As we continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see that Luke is really big on Jesus' teachings on possessions and money. We see the rich fool, the rich man and Lazarus, the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus. And Jesus repeatedly making the point that believers ought to steward their money and their possessions well, that how one stewards their money and possessions speaks loudly about one's eternal salvation. Consider Luke twelve fifteen. Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Well, these women, 
They understood that. Uh, Their possessions in that verse, that same Greek word is translated as means in Luke 8, 3, right? And so they gave lavishly from these very possessions. And in doing so, they demonstrated that their lives did not consist in the abundance of those possessions, but in that to which they freely gave those possessions, right? Jesus and his kingdom. Point number three, their provision. And their provision, their giving, their providing, it serves us, the church, as a powerful picture of Christian giving. So let me finish with just three ways that we can apply these principles that they so clearly demonstrate to our own lives and to our own giving. First, we see from their example that Christian giving isn't under compulsion. Like these women were not required to give anything. There's not like a membership fee or or an initiation fee for being a disciple or a follower of Jesus. But they gave, not out of obligation or requirement or compulsion, but simply out of thanksgiving and worship. And that is a beautiful picture of Christian giving. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Friends, consider that God does not need our giving. For every beast of the forest is his, the cattle on a thousand hills, the world and its fullness. And so we, the people of God, ought not to give reluctantly, under compulsion, like sitting there calculating the percentages and and feeling like we're paying our taxes, uh, feeling like we just need to get this out of the way so we won't feel guilty. No, Christian giving is done out of a joyful, thankful heart, not under compulsion. And that's exactly what these women were doing here. Second, related to the first, you see that Christian giving is not a repayment of debt. We need to be careful here, lest we think that our giving, whether it's money or time or anything else, lest we think that in our giving, we are somehow repaying a debt to God. God does not save us and then obligate us to a life of repaying him for what he's done for us. No, the Christian life starts and ends with the complete, absolute, unprompted, gracious forgiveness of God. His free grace given to us in Christ. We did nothing to deserve it. And then the life that we live as a result, well, it's not one of repayment, but it's one of thanksgiving and worship and faith in his promises. And I think we saw this really clearly illustrated in last week's passage. Because the whole point of that story that Jesus tells is that neither of the debtors could repay the debt but the lender entirely forgives it. And so how are we to see the sinful woman's giving, her breaking open of the alabaster jar, maybe her most valuable possession? Well, it's not her repaying Jesus for the debt of sin that he's forgiven. She could never repay him for a debt so large. Rather, it's her in her great love for her Lord, showing that Jesus is more valuable to her than any of her earthly possessions. That there is no cost so great that she wouldn't gladly give it up 
in worshiping her Lord. The same thing with these women. They gave out of their substance. Not to repay Jesus because he had healed them or because he had cast demons out of them or anything like that, but simply as an act of thanksgiving and worship, demonstrations of where their treasures lay. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. A Christian giving is a joyful response to that glorious truth. Third, Christian giving is not just about money. I think sometimes you can have this mindset that, well, once we've given our money, then we're done. Like, that's all we're going to give to God. Well, consider that that is not what these women did. Joanna is not sitting in the palace just cutting checks, right, sponsoring the ministry from afar. No, verse 2, she's with Jesus. She's with Jesus in chapter 8. She's with Jesus in chapter 23 at his death. And she's with Jesus chapter 24 in his resurrection. Same thing with Mary Magdalene. All these women from Galilee, they're not just giving of their substance in terms of their finances. They're giving of their substance in terms of their lives. In terms of just being wholeheartedly all in committed for Jesus. Now don't hear me saying that money is not important. Like we said, Jesus and his disciples, well, they needed money to eat. But friends, consider this. If Christ has saved us, if he has delivered us from point number one, our past, what a terrible past it was, well, how can we be so easily satisfied by just cutting checks from afar? Well, the glories of Calvary have to compel us to give of our time and our effort and our energy, those things that perhaps are more costly to us even than money, to give our very lives for the cause of Christ. Isaac Watts put it well. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, wife of Chusa, Susanna, and these women from Galilee, like they got that. That love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. At First Baptist Church, the question we need to be asking ourselves is, well, do we get it? Do we understand that like these women did? Father, we pray that you would lay in our hearts conviction from your word that this passage would continue to speak to us, Lord, even as we finish this sermon, that it might result in sanctification and growth for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.